am actually now more comfortable with not having control. I accept that I don't have control over what happens to me in life and that sits a little bit more easy with me than it did before. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Lee Petersales has worked as an Australian journalist for a quarter of a century. In that time, she's covered floods, murder trials, sporting scandals, surf accidents and the Royal Brisbane Show. She's worked in Brisbane, Sydney and Washington, D.C., interviewed innumerable world leaders, including Hillary Clinton, Tony Blair, and celebrities like the Dalai Lama, Henry Kissinger, Leonardo DiCaprio, Patti Smith. Until moving to 7.30 in 2011, Lee anchored the Late Line program, and before that was the ABC's national security correspondent. From 2001 to 2005, she was the network's Washington correspondent, covering stories including the aftermath of September 11 and the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Lee has two Walkley Awards and is the author of three books, Detainee 002, The Case of David Hicks, On Doubt and Any Ordinary Day. Her writing has appeared in numerous publications, including The Monthly and the Australian Literary Literary Review. With Annabelle Crabb, Lee hosts pop culture podcast Chat 10 Looks 3, which is nearly at its 100th episode. Lee Sales, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Thank you for inviting me to do it. Is it weird to be interviewed? I prefer to be the interviewer, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it is, It is. you have much more control as the interviewer, which is sort of weird because the interviewee speaks more, of course, so you can steer it where you want to go. But yeah, I'd prefer to be in your seat than mine. <laughs> <laughs> so what got you interested in journalism? You uh, you grew up in Brizzy and Kepera and Bald Hills in the Bielke peterson era. Was it some of the political turmoil of the time? Was it uh, something to do with your parents? What, no, uh, turned I, you on to journalism? I wasn't really tuned into politics at all. Uh, it was that I really liked writing uh, and reading and I wanted a job that allowed me to do that and journalism seemed sensible. I grew up in the sort of family where... Um, you needed to have an education and a job that would earn you a living. And something like, if you know, being a writer or an actor or something, that those are things that are hobbies. Um, and so you, you needed something, you know, to sort of, I guess, the view is to fall back on. Um, and so I thought, okay, journalism is a way that I can do those things but actually make a living. And so that was what um, drove me into it. And it's been great and I've loved it. You've loved it basically all the way through, right? You uh, you yeah. write in your most recent book that uh, that it was in your first day of journalism class at QUT that you felt you'd fallen into something that delighted you. Yeah, I, I think I was incredibly lucky because people often, you know, you can live your whole life and not find a job that you like or you can have a job that, you know, is just something that makes you money and allows you to sort of stay afloat. But I just found it really interesting from the first day and... Yeah, I used to sit down with my friends who were doing law or accounting or whatever and think, God, that just sounds so boring compared to what I'm doing. And then it's just been the whole way along. I've always found it interesting. And I think it's partly because every day you're immersed in a different subject. It's like every day I'm cramming for an exam on a different subject. And so the variety and the diversity of what you get to do in your job is really fantastic. And you work across various platforms. Tell me briefly what you love about 
uh, writing for newspapers, working on radio and, uh, and working in, TV, in television? Radio is a brilliant medium and uh, podcasting really is a form of radio. It's the same sort of thing. Radio is wonderful because bizarrely I think it's intimate in a way that the others aren't. You'd think TV would be maybe the most intimate because you're seeing pictures, but I think radio, the fact that you're not seeing pictures, allows your imagination to come into play. Um, And because you can be in your kitchen or in your car or even lying in bed and have these people, you know, having a conversation, it often feels like maybe you're in the conversation but you're just not saying anything. And, and in fact, Annabelle Crabb and I get that feedback from people all the time that they feel like they're sitting at a table with their friends having a conversation and they get the same buzz from it. So radio is brilliant like that. And also when you're interviewing somebody for radio, in my experience, you get much better material than for television because you don't have the gear and the camera is intimidating to people and off-putting and if you have a lot of lights. So the the absence of a ton of paraphernalia is really great. So radio is fantastic like that. And also because you don't need pictures, it's very immediate. Um, Television... There's no substitute for the power of a picture and seeing somebody say something for allowing you to draw conclusions about, you know, their trustworthiness or their likability or all of that sort of stuff. Um, And so it's hard to go past TV for just the power of it. Um, Print uh, and, you know, sort of long-form print, which is, I guess, um, when I say long-form, I mean I've done three books, but I guess I've written... I don't know, 2,000 word feature articles. I haven't done news print reporting. I've done more featurey stuff or opinion pieces. Um, the beauty of that is that I think that it allows you to put analysis in in a way that broadcast media often doesn't because you're sort of pressed for time often in a broadcast sense. So the kind of things that I've been able to explore in all three of my books I think would be difficult to do in a different medium. So they've all got their different strengths and weaknesses. And I think, you know, part of for me the enjoyment of my job is not just the subject matter, it's that I have been able to range across all those different things. So when the lights go on and the interview starts, you're, uh, you're, you're in a, an incredibly high-pressure environment. Uh, I remember you saying uh, the, your interview with Paul McCartney that it was a miracle that you didn't start so- sobbing partway through the interview. <laughs> How do you manage to control your nerves in those, that, that sort of environment? Um, it, every interview is so different and you're interviewing for a different thing so say for 7 30 if it's a political interview that's more of what you'd call i'd call an sort of an accountability interview where the person will say something and you might pull them up on it and say oh that's wrong or but last time you said mm. this you know blah 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 so that's one kind of interview with mccartney um the nerves are for it and, and sorry the nerves for something like that is just because it's high stakes and there's pressure and there's scrutiny something like mccartney the nerves are more to do with the fact that i'm a gigantic beatles fan and it just strikes me as beyond my wildest dreams to meet paul mccartney and um it's i guess it's partly the just anxiety that what if that person is a disappointment or they're nasty or something and then it sullies your, you know, view of them. Mm. But also I think it's just your own human emotion of that, you know, I'm just, it's overwhelming to meet somebody that you're a huge fan of. And so that I think comes into play. So in terms of how I manage the nerves, I think it depends on the reason that I'm nervous. So with something like um, a major political interview or a major broadcast like election night, I try to have be really well rested um I try to have done a huge amount of preparation so that I feel like there's nothing more that I could do so that when I go into the circumstance 
I don't have any niggling doubt like oh, I haven't done all the work. I haven't um, I haven't ticked every box. I don't mm. I, I know I'm going to ha- I'm going to have enough anxiety without thinking that I haven't actually done my homework, so I like to have the homework done. So, um, I think for those kind of things for me it's preparation and it's lulling myself into a false sense of control really over something that's not controllable because what somebody else says in an interview or what happens on live tv is out of my control so if I can pin down the things that are in my control like wearing a comfortable suit having had a decent night's rest having eaten good food that day then that lulls me into some sort of ridiculous false sense that I'm under control in the situation when it's something where the nerves are more relating to uh, my own emotion, like, you know, that I'm overwhelmed by the person I'm meeting or that the story's really sad or I know I'm interviewing someone about difficult terrain, like, say, the death of a loved one, I try very hard to think about this is not about me. This mm. is about the person at home and try to pull my own normal, I guess, reaction out of it. I try to, I suppose, and it doesn't sound very healthy, I try to suppress my own normal emotion in the context of doing it. What about for interviewees? Uh, I mean, I don't mean professional interviewees like politicians, but for people who might be stopped on the street or for a corporate leader who might have to be held to account for some unexpected event, uh, what tips do you have for them to to do as best they can in an interview? I just think people should be authentic. Um, I interviewed Shane Warne the other week and I was incredibly struck. I don't think I've ever interviewed somebody who was so unapologetically just themselves and that Mm. every answer seemed completely unspun and completely frank without a view to how that might play later on and the it takes a lot of either guts or I guess stupidity to do that I don't know but the thing is that when people answer like that they come across really authentically and so by far the most common feedback I've had to the Shane Warne interview was people going oh, I thought Shane Warne was a bit of a knob, but actually he's a great guy. And I think that that comes from the authenticity because people respect, um, I think, when you just are who you are and you admit that you've done things wrong or you admit Mm. that you're not perfect or whatever. Um, And so I would say to people, and I often say to people if they say, even like this week, for example, I was hosting a tribute concert to somebody who recently died and somebody who I was speaking to in the context of the concert said, can you tell me what I'm asking, what you'll be asking me? And I said, well, I can, but you need to not pre-script your answers because then it sounds unnatural and inauthentic. And that's what you know, causes people to give a bad response. You want it to seem as natural as possible. And so to be as natural as possible, telling the truth and being authentic are the keys to that. And in any ordinary day, you talk about a particular category of, uh, of interviewee, somebody who's uh, suffered significant loss. And, and you talk about some sort of quite rough experiences with the inter- interviewers, particularly in the case of James Scott and uh, Stuart Diver. Uh, how should someone who's suffered loss and is facing an interview respond I think you have to be very careful to choose who you want to be interviewed by and when and the context and all of those kind of things because clearly if you've gone through a traumatic event or you've found yourself unwittingly at the centre of a media storm, the last thing you want to do is be further traumatised and the media process can be traumatising. So I think you have to think through very carefully like who's the kind of person I want to talk to about this and what do I hope to get from talking to somebody about this. Um, and, and you know, I guess just what I would do were I in that circumstance, say my brother was eaten by a shark or something, I would know I wouldn't be in a fit state to make decisions. So I would ask someone that I trust to help me 
you know, think through it. So that's that's the problem, I think, for people when they find themselves in the middle, if they're not experienced at the media and they find themselves in the middle of a horrible event, mm. you're probably at your, your lowest, um, you know, competence to assess whether or not you should even talk to the media. You've faced this uh, barrage of online abuse uh, about your interviews, about your uh, separation, about your writings. Uh, you've said that barely a day goes by you don't get a disgusting, offensive sexual insult. How do you handle that? Do you know the volume of it is so vast that it legitimately is basically water off a duck's back because you can't take it seriously when it's just such a sort of barrage. Um, and... I mean, I just, I don't, I, it's hard to explain, but I just don't really care because it's sort of anonymous people like that aren't even tweeting or whatever under their actual name. And so I find it hard to care about it. I don't know if that says I'm like a sociopath or something, but it just does not make a gigantic impact on me. And I don't also, I'm not someone that say comes off the show, particularly if I've done an interview with the prime minister or the opposition leader, and I know that my meet my feed will be full of very partisan responses. I don't tend to come off air and then sit there and just go through it and keep refreshing it. I tend right. to just go home and switch off from that sort of stuff. Um, and the thing that I find when people say to me, how do you not get upset by it? Well, I always feel like flipping it and going, why do you get upset by it? Um, it's just, yeah, I, I just find it, I don't know, it, it's, it's sort of out there and it exists, but I don't see it as something meaningful, if that makes sense. But it's gotten a lot worse during your time as a journalist, hasn't it? Well, it has just because of the advent of social media. Mm. I'm sure there was plenty of people sitting at home when Kerry O'Brien was hosting 7.30 going, oh, bloody Kerry, you know, blah, blah, blah. But they didn't have the means to immediately send that to Kerry O'Brien. So I think... Um, you know, I'm sure that there's been, I mean, I remember years ago, the ABC switchboard would get inundated with calls if there was a Tetchy interview and you, mm. you might get the call log that would say 700 people rang, blah, blah, blah. I bet you now the volume of calls they get would be right off because it would be people on their social media having a go. So I think it has gotten worse and certain, I noticed certain, um, platforms are worse for it than others. So say for example, my Twitter is often full of just really extreme partisan abuse Instagram, there's none, really. Facebook, I see very little abuse. I'm not sure if it's to do with, well, I guess people aren't using their real names necessarily on Facebook or um, or Instagram, but Twitter just seems particularly, um, yeah, horrible. You occasionally choose to fire back. Yeah. Uh, famously when Graham, Graham Morris called you a cow and you said you'd rather be a cow than a dinosaur. Um, how do you how do you make those decisions as to as to when to engage? Well, see, that thing with Graham, I mean, I actually get on pretty well with Graham and I'd known Graham for a long time because he used to come on late line regularly. And so I thought my cow dinosaur line was actually like lighthearted, um, like just, you know, like almost like just a, you're going to say this and I'm just going to smack you down by being funnier. Um but then, of course, because people, you know, you can't always read the nuance in things. And so, and also a lot of people are humorless. And so people are, oh, Lisa, I'll smack down Graham Morrison. Well, actually, no, I was just having a lighthearted dig. Um, sometimes I'll retweet if somebody says something particularly egregious and offensive, I'll retweet it. Because I do like people to understand the degree of nastiness that's out there, just to give a taste of um, sometimes what it's like. Or even things like um, in the context of an election, Somebody, not everyone that sends a sort of, you know, tweet like you're hopeless or you're crap or whatever is a horrible person. What they maybe don't realise is the person that they're sending that message to, that they might be the 10,000th person to tell that one individual today that they're crap or they're hopeless. There was a story um, earlier this year, an ABC Adelaide presenter 
broke down in tears on air because they'd got a tweet or a text or something from someone to say that they're doing a crap job. And she said, well, we're trying our best and, you know, like live radio, it's it's moving super fast mm, and you're doing mm. what you can. And so obviously that one message landed for her at a bad moment on a bad day when she was doing her best and then someone slaps her down and says, you're crap, in a way that they wouldn't ever do that in real life. So I think it's good sometimes to remind people, you think you're one person sending the message, but actually you may be one of 10,000 that's been piling on this person. So it can be, I think, a form of bullying. Do you worry that in doing that potentially you're uh, putting talented young women off journalism? Um, no, not necessarily. I think that they just need to know the reality of what it's like. I think what is better is for somebody like me to say, yeah, I get all of this, but don't let it put you off. Yeah. Or just um, accept that what, why do you care what complete strangers, anonymous strangers say about you, particularly also when they're clearly motivated by you know extreme political mm. views at one end or the other? Like, why would you care about that? What you know, why does your self-esteem need to ride on that? Like, it just doesn't. Doesn't. Do you have any tricks for sort of taking off the armour when you uh, when, when you get get home? Sort of uh, putting aside, particularly when you've had one of these sort of accountability interviews that you you, you, t- you talk about. You've got to switch off. Like you have to switch off. Well, just literally get your phone (laughs) and switch it off. Um, Stop looking at it and distract yourself by doing something else. Mm. So, um, you know, I'll go home and read a novel or I'll play the piano or if it's, I mean, I get home, my my kids are already in bed, but if it's weekend or something, playing with my kids, you know, I'm doing stuff, talking to my friends, doing stuff that is not work related. I think Mm. people find it increasingly hard to switch off um, in this day and age, but you know, you don't have to be sitting in your bed at 9.30 at night scrolling through your tweets. Like, just bloody switch it off. And again, on that kind of thing between uh, the sort of rigorous scrutiny persona of Lee Sales and the empathetic Lee Sales, uh, are you able to ever meld those together in the same interview? Or do you really need to decide in an interview whether you're going to empathise with the interviewee or subject subject them to, uh, to scrutiny? I think... If it's somebody who holds a position of power, so whether it's the head of Cricket Australia or a minister for something or a bank boss, if they're in a position of power, I think that they're sometimes, you know, if someone's having a not very good interview, I might feel a degree of like feeling sorry for them, thinking, geez, they're making a bloody hash out of this. But that doesn't They might not be in the same position of power. But it doesn't uh, affect how – if someone in in a job like that is not doing a good interview, certainly I won't go softer because I feel sorry for them um, because a couple of reasons. One is you're in a position of power and therefore you should be able to, you know, justify your position mm. to your stakeholders um, who are, you know, the viewers or whoever is part of your organisation and so forth. Um, two is that – People in positions of power usually have professionals who arm them with the tools to manage an interview from somebody like me, not like some poor schmuck in the street whose brother just got taken by a shark. Um, These people have people that all day have hopefully been or presumably been working with them to say, she'll probably ask about this, you could say that, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I think... um, they should be able to equip themselves well. So in, a, in an interview like that, I don't have a lot of empathy for, you know, um, if the person's going well or going badly or whatever. In an interview with somebody who's not um, a trained professional with armies of people equipping mm. them to do a 7.30 interview, um, I try really hard to be understanding that it's not a natural thing for them to have to front up on television, that they might only be familiar with me from the first kind of interview and so they might be scared of me and not sure 
you know, am I a nice person? Am I a hard person? Mm, mm. So I try, to, for people like that, I try very hard to put them at ease. Often I'll try to make somebody, you can't always in interviews if it's very serious, but I'll often try to make somebody laugh with the first question because it'll put them at ease. Or in the small talk leading up to the interview, I'll try to make them feel not threatened. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you just approach the each, each different sort, uh, each different type, you know, differently. So your book, uh, On Doubt, is a... Uh, a, a uh, terrific praise of the notion that uh, that we shouldn't uh, be too certain about our views. Why is it that you don't trust what you call zealots? Um, I just, my experience of life is that it's not usually extreme and that the truth usually lies somewhere in the middle and that people often, you know, can be well-intentioned but wrong um, or have, you know, poor intentions but be on the right path. And I just have found in my experience as a reporter that the truth usually isn't found at the extremes. Um, and I, f I sort of find it personally very off-putting when someone is so certain of their view of something. I'm not talking about fact here. I'm talking about opinion. Um, when they're so certain of their opinion about something that they can't even fathom the idea that another, so that another side of the argument might have merit in it. Like to give an example, um, when we had the same-sex marriage debate and you had the core of people who were, oh, am I allowed to say this because you said no policy on this? No, dive in. Is that all right? Um, when we had the same-sex marriage debate, um, there were a core of people who were anti-same-sex marriage and they, you know, held those beliefs very strongly that, you know, uh, this shouldn't be allowed to happen and they, they felt that they spoke for a significant segment of the community and so forth. When the vote then came back in and it was overwhelming that the country had voted yes... I felt like I didn't see anyone on that side of the argument go, oh, God, wow, do we? Wow, I thought we spoke for like a big majority of people. Jeez, wow, it's causing me to re rethink maybe we're wrong. Like I feel like I don't often see people in mm. public life do that when things don't, you know, unfold as they would have thought that they might unfold. And, yeah, I just sort of, I don't know, I t I've tended to um, – I hate the sort of practice of people where they magnify, you know, the sort of right elements of their argument and then ignore, you know, holes in it or ignore facts which are contrary. I just find that sort of intellectually dishonest. So, yeah, zealotry I just find off-putting. Having said that, sometimes I find it like something that I admire because I just can't believe how much people will sometimes put on the line for their views about something mm, about mm. the environment or refugees or whatever their cause is that they believe in, um, you know, Christian missionaries. Sometimes I think, wow, it must be incredible to believe in something that strongly. Um, so there, there, is, there are some things to admire about zealotry, but mostly I'm suspicious of it. Yeah, my favourite uh, question for uncovering zealots is uh, what evidence would I have to give you to persuade you that that view was wrong? Uh, a typical zealot isn't able to answer that, that question. Oh, that's There really is no evidence that they, they can identify that would persuade them to, uh, to, to switch. That's really interesting. I read um, recently, or I'm halfway through it, a book called Sapiens, uh, mm, which is a very mm. interesting read. And he makes a point in it where sometimes people who believe in something particularly strongly will say, like say, for example, in um, with homosexuality, people will go, well, it's unnatural. It's unnatural for men to have two relations. And he's coming at it from a biological perspective. And he says, well, actually, 
um, anything that's possible in nature is by its definition natural. Things that are unnatural are things that nature makes impossible. So for example, if I jumped off a building, um, it's unnatural for me to be suspended in midair because gravity would force me to go to the ground. So he says if something's possible, it is by definition natural. (laughs) Unnatural means nature would not permit it to happen. Uh, And I just thought, God, that is a fascinating way to look at that. And that book is full of um, little things like that, little light bulb moments that you go, oh, yes. Uh, In 2014, you suffered a uterine rupture that nearly killed you and uh, your second son, James. You said you stepped back from that initially and then chose to write about it. What chose you to write a book about the hardest and presumably most terrifying moment of your life? Just, um, I think that, well, two things. One was that every night on my own program, people are having moments like that, that end, you know, far worse than mine did. And I felt like night after night on my show, I was confronted by how quickly life can change and that you can be living your life and that it can be suddenly taken away from you or turned upside down. And that, that that's a very discomforting thing to think about. And then that experience with the birth of my second child really personally rammed that home to me, how quickly things can change for you. Um, I think I just was grappling with for a long time that I came out of it and I felt like I was really unsettled and on shaky ground and I didn't know how to make sense of it. And I think because I'm the sort of person who, as I said before, when I'm doing interviews, I like to, or big broadcasts, I like to give myself a fake sense of control over things that are out of my control. There's nothing more out of your control than the direction of your own life because Mm. random things can come in from everywhere. And so I think by writing a book and looking at the forces that shape a person's life and looking at, say, things like probability and the odds of bad things happening to us, I think that what I was attempting to do, I didn't know this at the time, but with hindsight, I think subconsciously I was trying to find some control over an uncontrollable situation. Now, what happened, it took me about four years of research to write that book. What happened by the end is that it didn't, of course, give me control because these things are out of your control. But I am actually now more comfortable with not having control. I accept that I don't have control over what happens to me in life. And that sits a little bit more easy with me than it did before. How does that manifest, Lee? What are some of the situations where four years ago you would have felt that you needed to be in control and, and now you're comfort with, I'm comfortable just, with the lack of it? I'm just generally less anxious. Um, so even things like doing my own show, I just notice that I'm less anxious mm. about it. I can't explain why. Like something's just clicked a bit in my brain. I'm just less anxious. I am less... I, I, I still worry about, I'm a bit of an overthinker, but I'm, you know, used to be a chronic, you know, middle of the night worrier about stuff and what if this happens and what if that happens. Mm. Now I'm much more likely to think, you know what, well, today's actually going all right, so I'm just going to take that. And I tend to be a bit more in the moment. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it has sort of changed me to be a bit a bit less... Um, I don't know, a bit less anxious. And I feel a bit more reassured that I know things will go wrong to me because I'm a human being and I'm alive. And I feel a little bit more like I believe in my capacity to manage that. Do you feel like you're a lucky person? 
I did until I was about 40 and then it felt like very suddenly uh, I'd used up all of my luck. <laughs> I had a series of uh, bad things that I write about happen just sort of one after the other in, in um, 2014 and I just thought, oh, my God, I've just used up all my luck. And, and you know, this was – I was somebody who like had a really nice family, lovely friends – picked a job that I really liked and, and was suited, married someone quite young uh, and that went well, uh, had tons of great opportunities in journalism, career-wise everything went fantastically well. Um, and I – even things like I remember one night going to the uh, Greyhound Racing with a friend and we won the trifecta from a $5 bet. We, I think we got a bit over 200 bucks. We decided we'd go to a Thai restaurant. We stopped at a bottle shop on the way to get a bottle of wine and I found lying in the gutter a $50 note. Like that's the <laughs> level of luck that I used to have going on. The thing on. that economists say should never happen. <laughs> yeah, it was unbelievable. Um, and then I had this string of events of nearly dying in childbirth and my child being thought to have had brain damage and then we sort of staggered through that and then he got viral meningitis. Then my other son was unwell. Then my marriage fell apart. It was just like one thing after another going mm. wrong. Uh, and so I felt like, oh, well, I guess I used up all my luck in my first 40 years my life and it's all downhill from here but again I've come to realize some people um have like John Howard who I interview in any ordinary day the former prime minister when you look at his life in in hindsight you know over the 80 years he has had a ton of luck like he's just I mean you've written a whole book about luck he's had a ton of luck over the whole course of his life um other people say Stuart Diver when you look at his life so far you'd go geez, that poor bugger, he's had a lot of bad luck. He's had, you know, his first wife died in threadbow landslide, his second wife died of breast cancer. Um, but really, there's no such thing as being inherently lucky or unlucky. We can only discover in hindsight when we look back at our lives, have we been, you know, lucky or unlucky? It's it's hard to know. You also draw out from your interviewees some lovely insights on how we should deal with those who've suffered tremendous loss. Um I particularly appreciated uh, Steve Sin's notion of accompanying. Talk yeah. Talk about that. So Steve Sin is a Jesuit priest um, who has spent most of his ministry on the streets of King's Cross working with homeless and marginalised people. Um, he He's mid-70s now. He burnt out from doing that after about 35 years, took a little break, and then now he works in Bathurst with people who are coming out of prison and then trying to get themselves back into the community. And he has spent a lot of time around people who have been suffering. Um, and I came across him because I interviewed a woman whose partner had been murdered and Steve, she came to deal with Steve in the days afterward. And she said just he seemed like the only person who knew the terrain and could speak the language and was just said the right thing and did the right thing all the time. And so I went to Steve to say... Because, you know, so many of us in that circumstance, you feel terrified you're going to say and do the wrong thing and you mm, often avoid mm. people because you think, oh, I just don't want to make it worse. And I asked Steve, you know, how do you know the right thing to do? And he said, oh, I just have got no idea. I don't know at all what the right thing is to do. But he put it down to just being there and what he'd called accompanying people. And so he said, "It's you need to take the focus off yourself and about what am I going to say or what am I going to do. It's simply just about being there and showing to the person who's having the terrible time that you are accompanying them along this path that they're on. Um, and I, I found that a very liberating way to look at it, just, just to stop thinking about what you might do and start thinking about the other person. 
Your podcast, uh, uh, Chat 10 Looks 3, uh, what do you enjoy most about uh, about talking pop culture with uh, the wonderful Annabelle Crabbe? Um, just that, firstly, she's just so funny. Um, so <laughs> just she just cracks me up. And also her brain and her ability to – just her insights into things I sometimes find – gobsmacking like we were on a flight together when the liberal leadership spill was happening recently and she started writing a column and she showed me the first two lines because she wanted me to check something did I think it was in poor taste or something and I read it and I it was whatever she'd written was fine and I I just sort of thought oh yeah you know like bog standard column by the time we landed and then you know an hour or so later this column got posted online I swear to God, it was one of the best things I read about the whole leadership spill. And I, just, I couldn't believe it that in this one hour from when I'd seen this just really bog standard opening to, you know, a couple of hours later was this polished, amazing, insightful bit of work. So she does things like that occasionally. Don't tell her I said this, of course, because I don't <laughs> want to get a big it's head. It's our secret. Or I should say a bigger head. Um, so she, I just am very admiring of her uh, intellect and her ability to just, I don't know, piece things together in, a, in an entertaining and amusing way. Um, so I enjoy the conversation with her because I find it really super stimulating. And also she often will have it, – it's really enjoyable when we've both read or watched something the same and we can sort of compare notes, but it's equally as enjoyable when she's read or seen something that I haven't yet and I can get her take on it. So it's just an in, really – it's like the most interesting conversation you can have. Is it mostly consumption or production? Uh, consumption, I'd say, because it's production slow, <laughs> consumption's fast. <laughs> so, but but you you do it principally because you enjoy it. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, um, it's actually now it's become so huge and it has such a following that it feels now a bit more like even if we <laughs> look if we st- if we stopped enjoying it, I guess we wouldn't do it. But I feel now like we'd be letting people down. Right, right. So there's an, that now there's a level of. Um, like that we sort of have to do it I feel yeah. like um even though you know we're not paid for it and it's sort of voluntary but we do still enjoy it thank god so it's not arduous to keep doing it but I do now have this sense of you know there's tens of thousands of people that follow it and they're engaged with it and I feel like oh geez I don't want to disappoint them now as a Monty Python fan I have to confront you on this what does god. your dislike of Monty Python tell us about your attitude to the observe <laughs> I wouldn't have agreed to do this if I'd known that you're a Monty Python fan um <laughs> I it just I think it just speaks to what you find funny. And I generally don't find the absurd funny for some reason. And I don't, um, for some reason, British comedy, I, I don't tend to find that funny. So um, people always say, what about the goodies or whatever? Not just sort of bypassed me. Surely, uh, yes, the, Prime Minister. Uh, the Mighty Bush, no. Yes, Prime Minister, no. Just, <gasps> I know. I just, it's not my faulty towers. Not really okay, like you know. I just, I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. But Monty Python in particular, I just find pathologically unfunny. So I don't know. I don't know if it's um. Yeah, I, I tend to find like I'm just trying to think now of something that I find funny. So well, that the I dead can, parrot sketch, obviously. I don't find the dead parrot sketch funny at all. Stop it. <laughs> funny for the viewers. It's not going to be funny. <laughs> Stop it. Stop quoting it. I know what you're doing. Stop it. Um, I tend to find wordplay um, funny. Uh, I don't like visual comedy, like um, Three Stooges, stuff like that. I just don't find that funny. So, yeah, I'm just making myself sound really humorless now, aren't I? <laughs> 
but you like you like musicals, which are uh, which are much more structured and, to, to my mind, uh, very rarely funny. Uh, <laughs> form of, uh, yeah, form of entertainment. Yeah, the, I mean, Book of Mormon's pretty funny, but uh, no, musicals aren't funny. Musicals are sort of whimsical and just fantasy. Hmm. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons people often don't like opera or musicals is because they find it jarring that someone's just living a life and then they start singing. So you've got to suspend your disbelief. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I like suspending my disbelief. Hmm. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Um, probably enjoy the moment and don't be in such a rush because uh, I, you know, have always been in a hurry to get things done and to get to the next opportunity and I think you don't need to necessarily be like that. Um, Aren't you being a hypocrite? Haven't you got where you are now I because have. you're in a rush? Yes, I have. And so, but nonetheless, I think that I have probably, I, I probably could still be where I am had I been in less of a rush okay. or got to it a little bit later and it, I don't think it would have mattered. Yeah. So things like I got, I wanted to be the Washington correspondent and I got back from that when I was 32. And I think, would it have killed me if I went when I was 32? You know, like, because it felt like when I got home, it was like, oh, I've done the thing I always wanted to do and now I've got another 30 years of my career, you know, left to go. Um, but I am being a hypocrite because I have liked where I've ended up. Um, but I think if you're doing a job that you're enjoying, why rush to the next job just to tip mm, to get mm. further up the ladder? So I, you got to strike the balance with that. And just to be appreciative of, um, and I think I am now, but probably was less when I was younger, of what you're doing where you're at in a given state of life and to try to not be wishing it away to get to the next bit of it. Even with my kids who are small so they can really push my buttons, I try to, even when they're demanding my full attention, try to think, well, pretty soon they're not going to want my attention at all. So yes. I should appreciate this. They'll move from the labour-intensive stage to the capital-intensive stage. <laughs> yeah. Did you uh, consciously choose mentors in, uh, in, in your early career? Um, no, I think it just happened by sort of happenstance, really, the people that have ended up being my mentors. And I don't generally approve of um, assigned mentor-type mm. relationships because I think you need to have some sort of chemistry and spark so that the person who's doing the mentoring feels like it's worth their time investment and the person who's being mentored is you know, respectful of and admiring of the person doing the mentoring so they're likely to take their feedback on board. So I think the best way for mentoring relationships to happen is for teams of people to work together that involve senior and junior people so mm. that those relationships can spring up. So I think my earliest – you tend to have more mentors, I think, younger in, when you're younger because – there's just more senior people to choose from. Um, and so the first sort of people I worked with in journalism, like I'm thinking of my first boss at the ABC, John Cameron, or um, there was a woman when I worked at Channel 9 called Elizabeth Egan who was very helpful to me, um, Fiona Crawford who was a producer in Brisbane. They were all people that I really respected and that they, for whatever reason, were willing to help me. Mm. And that just sort of came about that I was working with those people every day and they were helpful and so they were people I could turn to for advice. As I've gotten older and more senior myself, I tend to, I think it's more of a like peer, I don't know if mentoring is the right word, but I have peers that I trust whose judgment I really mm. um, believe in. So my executive producer, Justin Stevens at 7.30, is really smart and emotionally empathetic and, and emotionally intelligent. And he is a really good person to bounce things off. Lisa Miller, the ABC's former London correspondent, very good editorial judgment, very sensible person. So I tend to have people like that that I rely on that I'll say, you know, I'll often go to Justin and say, 
I'm thinking of opening with this, what do you think? What if I did that instead? How do you think that would work? And then we sort of bounce off each other. So it's more a, I don't have someone that I go to who I view as like my mentor, but I have these other relationships. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, that hard work pays off, good things happen to good people, all that stuff that I think you tend to believe a bit more when you're younger. Um, uh, tell you what I... I guess I probably did believe at one time, but I definitely don't now. Follow your dreams. That's the most dumbest piece of advice out there. Don't but follow you your dreams. <laughs> yeah, again, like for me, I guess it worked out all right. But I think that generally that is bad advice because, you know, even what I do for a job, I sometimes get worried thinking my kids will think that becoming a person that anchors a TV show is a viable career path. Like it's really not like it's very unusual for that to work out. So, um, you know, my house is full of artists and comedians and actors and writers and people like that, that I think it's probably giving my children a false sense of like, it's not easy to get to make a living out of any of those arty Mm -hmm. sort of jobs. Um, I think, Find something that you like doing and that you can make a living out of so you can have a reasonably comfortable life. I don't think you have to be affluent, but I think that having enough money to put food on your plate and to have a reliable income and um, to do the things that you need to do to make yourself comfortable I think is very important. When are you most happy? Um, When am I most happy? Probably hanging out with friends, um, having a laugh. I mean, I do, I do love being at work on a day when there's a big story going. It's just absolutely exhilarating. It's just there's no more fun in the world than being in a newsroom in the middle of a big um, thing that's going on. Uh, I, I think I'm a pretty happy person, actually. I'm mostly happy, I would say. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, mentally is to remain engaged with my friends and to try to not be thinking about myself all the time the unhappiest people I know tend to be people that are in their own headspace the whole Mm. time and so trying to think things through from oh you know Kathy was feeling unwell last week wonder how she's going um oh Rani's had that new baby um wonder how that's going on maybe I could when I make my lasagna for on Sunday other I could make some extra and drop it off to Rani I think that that is good for me to just be trying to think outwardly physically I try to exercise you know four days maybe out of seven I find it hard to fit in with work and kids but I do would get to the gym maybe four times a week um and I just try to I try to not I wouldn't say I'm a brilliantly healthy eater. Like I'm not someone that's only eating activated almonds and that sort of thing. Like I had a lamington this morning, for example. But I had a lamington this morning, so I won't be having chips or chocolate or something later. Or if I feel like I want to have a chocolate, I'll have a Freddo, not a Mars bar, you know. So I try to be mindful of like portion size and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I just try to exercise. And I try to – I do things like I don't keep alcohol in the house – because I know if there is, I'll come home and have a drink. Um, So I prefer to just – and I don't keep chips or chocolate or things like that in the house Mm, for the same mm. reason because it's there, I will will consume it. So that helps me to be, I think, a little bit healthier. And I do – I hate a late night. I do try to get to bed early because my kids get me up very early. So, yeah, I I think physically I just try to tick all of those, you know, bog-standard boring boxes that everybody ticks. And finally, Lee. Which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? 
Definitely my parents, I would say, because they just instilled so strongly the value of hard work and of being a decent person and being honest and um, they're both pretty authentic people. So, yeah, I would say the influence of my parents in how I behave. Like my father died recently and somebody sent a note to the newsroom that um, was very affecting where he said that my – he didn't know me but he said that he had – worked with dad years ago and he said my work bore a lot of hallmarks of my father's professionalism and knowing my father I thought wow you just can't get a higher compliment than that because I know what my father was like that he was super organized and dedicated and hardworking and plain speaking and all those sorts of things so I thought wow that's an incredibly um yeah sound compliment so I think yeah definitely by with daylight second my parents (laughs) Lisa Ailes thank you so much for appearing in the good life podcast today thank you very much Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.